Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hi, I'm Patrick Hines from the hit true crime comedy podcast, True Crime Obsessed. And I'm making a new true crime podcast with my best friend of 20 years, Broadway diva Ellen Marsh. Our podcast is called Obsessed with Disappeared. And each episode tells the mysterious story of a missing person by recapping an episode of the ID show Disappeared. The episodes are light and funny, but we never find the jokes at the expense of the victim or the crime. Yeah, we're not monsters, you guys. And besides, girl, it's mostly just me making fun of you anyway. Yeah, you know, people think you're nice. I think that's the biggest (laughs) misconception about you. Anyway, Obsessed with Disappeared is a super easy listen. It's hilarious and informative true crime storytelling from two best friends who truly love each other and will do just about anything to make the other one laugh. So... If you're fascinated by cases of missing people and you're serious about true crime, but you also love to laugh, you'll love Obsessed with Disappeared. Find Obsessed with Disappeared wherever you get your podcasts. The Gone Cold Podcast may contain violent or graphic subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Amber Nicole Crum was born to parents Larry and Stephanie in Dallas County, Texas, on September 25, 1981. Since her parents separated in 1982 and her father moved to Carrollton, Kentucky shortly thereafter, Amber didn't know her father well. Larry and Stephanie Crum's divorce was finalized on December 1, 1983. Just 25 days later, Two-year-old Amber vanished. Since the divorce, Stephanie struck up a romance with a man named James Britton Monroe, who went by the nickname Brit, and the man began living with her and Amber. On Monday, December 26, 1983, at about 9.45 a.m., Amber sat in Brit's pickup truck unattended, according to him, while he went into McDonald's grocery store to buy paper towels and sodas. The grocery store was located on the 1000 block of Murdoch Lane, about two blocks from their southeast Dallas home. Britt was in the store for about two to five minutes, he said, and when he returned, two-year-old Amber was nowhere to be found. The man called the Dallas police and reported Amber missing, and a search of the surrounding area was conducted. A description of the girl was given. She was a white female toddler with blonde hair and blue eyes with pierced ears. Amber was 24 inches tall and weighed 25 pounds. She was last seen wearing a purple snow jacket, hooded Dallas Cowboys sweatshirt with a light blue shirt underneath, blue jeans and brown shoes. The FBI quickly became involved, and by December 28th, two days after Amber vanished, 
They and the Dallas police believed that Larry Crum, the girl's father, had taken her. It was their first lead, but when authorities learned that Larry was up north and had made contact with Amber's mother since the disappearance, and the Carroll County Sheriff's Office in Kentucky had verified his presence there, that lead fell apart. Larry Crum, who began heading to Dallas to search for his daughter as soon as he got the news she was missing, didn't have her. Ground searches for the missing girl continued for weeks, but provided no clues, nor did searches by helicopter. Volunteers, police, FBI, and Texas Rangers could find no trace of Amber Crum. In the second week of January 1984, Stephanie moved out of the home she'd been sharing with her boyfriend, Britt. On Friday, January 13, 1984, 22-year-old James Britt Monroe was arrested as he worked, servicing the plumbing of a house in Garland. He was charged and held on a $50,000 bond in connection with Amber's disappearance. The news of Britt's arrest seemingly came out of nowhere, but over the next several days, as details came out to the press, an answer to the question, what happened to Amber Crum, seemed to be on the horizon. Although Amber's body had not been found, Dallas Police Captain W.A. Gentry told the Dallas Morning News that the department had received information that gave them reason to believe Britt Monroe was responsible for the child's death. The information the captain spoke of was obtained during an interview with Amber's mother, Stephanie. She told police that on Christmas Day, the day before Amber vanished, Britt had been using narcotics although he did not, she admitted, appear to have been high to the point that it was obvious. Stephanie apparently told police that the last time she saw her daughter, which was on Christmas night as she was going to bed, she believed Amber was already dead. In the official police statement, Stephanie said that Amber was cold to the touch and her eyes were open without blinking at 9.30 p.m. that night. This was a hindsight observation, as Stephanie said she went to sleep that night not thinking Amber was deceased. The preliminary hearing, however, held a week after the arrest, produced no substantive evidence against Britt Monroe. Britt's co-worker testified that he'd talked to Britt the morning of Amber's disappearance and had heard the little girl in the background during the call. If that were the case, Amber's mother's statement that she thought the girl was dead when she last saw her, of course, couldn't be true, and that was hardly the only testimony that suggested such. At the hearing, Stephanie many times contradicted the three-page statement that she'd given police, even saying instead that she believed her daughter, Amber, was still alive. Stephanie said the police had pressured her into making the statement that Amber appeared dead the last time she saw her. There were witnesses who claimed to have seen bruising on various occasions, suggesting abuse at the hands of Britt Monroe. I'd like to note that the allegations of abuse of Amber Crum are just that, allegations. The Dallas County District Attorney insisted that the murder charges against James Britt Monroe would stay put until a grand jury decides otherwise, though the judge reportedly dismissed the charges on the grounds of insufficient evidence, 
and the charges were never refiled. Seemingly, the district attorney and the police were riding solely on Stephanie's statement, which of course was shattered at the hearing, supplemented by investigators' insistence that Britt Monroe had given them inconsistent statements. The entire arrest was based on a hunch at best, police pressure on Stephanie as a witness at worst. It should be noted that at least one Dallas police detective seemed to believe from the get-go that the disappearance of Amber Crumb was stranger-related, a belief that other investigators beyond the initial investigation appear to share. Though leads and tips have come and gone over the subsequent years, no trace of Amber Crumb has ever been found, and the case is long cold. Every day, we rise challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ara Denise Johnson, who was known affectionately by the nickname Nisi, was born in Gregg County, Texas, to parents Robert and Ophelia on March 26, 1981. The family lived in a mobile home on Boulder Street in Big Sandy, a small town in Upshur County, located a little over 100 miles east of Dallas. On Wednesday, April 2, 1986, Robert and Ophelia woke up around 6.45 a.m. Nisi was not in her bed and was nowhere to be found. It seemed impossible. Robert had awoken and looked in on the five-year-old just hours before. Sometime, he guessed, between 1 and 2.30 a.m. The father tucked his daughter's covers around her. After a quick search of their immediate surroundings, Robert and Ophelia called police. Deputies from the Upshur County Sheriff's Department arrived at the Johnson home shortly thereafter and took note that while little Nisi's bedroom and bed appeared undisturbed, her dark orange bedspread, like the girl, was gone. The back door of the mobile home, too, was apparently open when the Johnsons woke up that morning, but there were no signs of a struggle anywhere, no signs of forced entry and Robert and Ophelia's sleep hadn't been disturbed by any unusual noises. 
Sheriff's deputies began searching and brought in dogs to see if they could pick up Nisi's scent, but nothing panned out. As searches by law enforcement, family, and volunteers commenced, Nisi's mother begged for someone to come forward with information through the local media. Nisi's description was released. The five-year-old black female stood about three feet tall and weighed 39 pounds, her black and dark brown hair curly. The brown-eyed little girl was missing two of her front lower teeth, and a back molar on the right side had a silver filling. She was sleeping in only her underwear when her father last saw her. The local and surrounding area newspapers and television outlets gave Nisi's case little attention, far less, no doubt, than the case should have gotten. Law enforcement, however, searched for months, utilizing tracking dogs and foot searches, and covering more ground faster by horseback. No clues, no traces of Nisi could be found. Family members of the little girl complained that Nisi's missing posters never accompanied the many others in public buildings and local businesses. It was devastating, her aunt later commented, to feel like other people did not care. The disappearance of little Nisi was a crushing and debilitating blow for her parents, Robert and Ophelia Johnson, who lost their six-year-old son only nine months before in a drowning accident. It was tough to keep going, and the lack of support from the local media was salt on the wound. In July of 1986, three months after Nisi vanished, what little press her case was getting came to a complete stop when a more sensational story began unfolding. Jerry Walter McFadden was a serial rapist and killer who was more or less abetted by the system's lax punishment of sexual offenders. In 1973, he was given 15 years each for two rapes, one in Haskell County and one in Denton County, and paroled in December of 1978 after serving just five years. Six months later, in June of 1979, the animal, his self-given nickname, raped and strangled a Shackelford County woman who luckily survived. She identified McFadden as her attacker, though he was unable to be apprehended because he skipped town. McFadden traveled to Portland, Oregon with a hometown friend, where he sexually assaulted and strangled to death a 20-year-old woman in July of 1979, a crime that went unsolved, in fact, until 2019, when McFadden was linked by DNA. Back in Jones County, Texas, in October 1979, McFadden is arrested for violating parole. Although he was convicted in 1981 while incarcerated for the June 1979 attack, robbery, and sexual assault in Shackelford County and given a cumulative life sentence, he was paroled less than five years later in July of 1985. Jerry Walter McFadden raped again in May of 1986 this time an 18-year-old who, along with two others, became a victim of the monster's day-long thrill-kill spree. While awaiting trial in an Upshur County, Texas jail the following July, McFadden overpowered a deputy, taking his weapon and another deputy as a hostage, and fled. He was finally brought back in three days later. 
the hostage, Deputy Rosalie Williams, luckily escaped mostly unharmed prior to McFadden's capture. McFadden was convicted eventually and was executed by lethal injection in 1999, 20 years before the slang in Portland, Oregon, which he was responsible for, was even solved. There's way more to McFadden's life as a depraved sociopath, but the point is that the search for Ara Denise Johnson, Nisi, was still ongoing when the McFadden ordeal blew up in Upshur County. Again, her case already wasn't getting the attention that many others across the state and country were getting, and Nisi's family was disheartened that when McFadden escaped, not only did what little press they were getting stop, but police efforts too suffered tremendously. Ultimately, after subjecting Robert and Ophelia Johnson, along with another unnamed individual, to polygraph tests, all of whom passed, the Upshur County Sheriff's Department classified Nisi's disappearance as a non-family abduction, believing that foul play was almost certainly involved. Robert Johnson, the missing girl's father, died in 1989. His obituary listed Nisi as a survivor. The family had never given up hope that she would come home. Skeletal remains found near the Camp Joy area of Lake of the Pines Reservoir in Marion County, Texas, in April of 2011, gave Upshur County Sheriff's Office investigators a new lead in Nisi's disappearance. Perhaps, they thought, the remains belonged to the girl. In August of that year, however, results of the forensic analysis of the bones showed that they belonged to a middle-aged Asian male. Before those remains were discovered, long before, in fact, investigators had been weighing the possibility of a man's involvement in the disappearance of Aranisi Johnson, and they were far from the only Texas agency looking at the man. Investigators in Dallas, too, had their eyes on the man, who was convicted in 1991 of sexually assaulting and murdering a child in Columbus, Ohio. They thought possibly he was responsible for the disappearance of Amber Crumb. The man, David Elliott Penton, had ties to Texas and was shaping up to be a serial child rapist and killer. David Elliott Penton was arrested and charged with the murder of nine-year-old Nydra Ross in Columbus, Ohio in May of 1990. Nydra had disappeared in March 1988 and for months, Penton helped in search efforts to locate her body alongside his friend and co-worker, who was also Nydra's uncle. The man became a suspect in Nydra's disappearance quickly, at first because he was the last person to have been seen with Nydra. Penton's enthusiasm in helping with searches, too, set off the radar of Columbus police but it was the bloodstain in his van beneath one of the seats that solidified law enforcement's interest in him. DNA extraction and comparison weren't an option for the Columbus police at that point, however, and until Nider's body was found six months after she disappeared by a hunter in a rural, wooded area of Marion County, Ohio, authorities didn't have enough on Penton to arrest him. When the nine-year-old was discovered, Detectives did not seek an arrest warrant for almost another year and a half as they collected evidence and witnesses against Penton. 
they wanted to ensure he'd get convicted and stay put. At his trial, which took place in April of 1991, evidence such as the bloodstain in his van was introduced, as were several jailhouse witnesses who'd heard of Nidra Ross's fate straight from the monster's mouth. Penton had told all of them about beating, raping, and strangling to death the nine-year-old in his van after coercing her in. He was convicted of both aggravated murder and kidnapping. At his sentencing trial, the jury heard of his long history of depravity, pedophilia, and cruelty. In 1984, David Elliott Penton was back in Killeen, Texas, stationed at Fort Hood after serving back and forth in Korea. He was familiar with the city and the surrounding areas, as he'd been stationed at Fort Hood since dropping out of high school and enlisting in the Army in 1977, until he first went to Korea in early 1980. Having climbed the ranks to sergeant, by all accounts he was a motivated and adept soldier, but Penton was demoted to specialist for various acts of deception while serving overseas. Penton was arrested in November of 1984 in Colleen for killing his two-month-old son. The infant wouldn't stop crying, and Penton fell into a fit of rage, shaking him so violently he died. The man pleaded guilty to manslaughter for the death of his son, and was given a five-year sentence, but fled as that sentence was being appealed disappearing until Columbus police in Ohio arrested him for Nigel Ross's slang. But that wasn't the full extent of witness testimony at the sentencing trial. Both of Penton's ex-wives also testified that while stationed in Fort Hood, Penton would torture and kill small animals, and they'd both also testified that he'd sexually abused his own daughters. Penton possessed child pornography, and also spoke to unnamed individuals about his fantasies of, quote, kidnapping, sexually assaulting, and murdering young schoolgirls. At the sentencing trial, which was required since prosecutors were seeking the death penalty, the jury ultimately decided that instead of a death sentence, Penton would spend the rest of his life in jail. At the same time the trial of David Elliott Penton was occurring, in the Dallas, Texas suburb of Garland, police detective Gary Sweet was reading about it in the Dallas Morning News. He had three abduction murder cases of his own that had been keeping him up at night. When he read that Penton had fled Fort Hood in Colleen, Texas to evade a sentence for killing his own son, his interest was piqued, as it was further piqued with the fact that one of the detective's victim's mother was from a small town in Ohio, a little less than a hundred miles south of where Penton killed Nigra Ross. Penton's close resemblance to the composite sketch of the man who took and murdered three-year-old Roxanne Reyes from Garland in 1987, one of Detective Sweet's cases, was too much to overlook. Little Roxanne and the detective's two other cases of raped and murdered girls matched the method of operations of Penton's Ohio killing of Nydra. They'd all been kidnapped after an attempt to lure them into a vehicle, sexually assaulted, strangled, and dumped far from where they were taken. On January 19, 1985, five-year-old Christy Lynn Meeks vanished from her Mesquite, Texas apartment complex, 
her body found a few months later, floating in Lake Texoma, some 40 miles away. The body of nine-year-old Christy Diane Proctor, who disappeared while walking home in North Dallas in February of 1986, a purple plastic Valentine's heart broken in pieces on the street, the only evidence left behind, was found many miles away in a field in Plano. Roxanne Hope Reyes was punched in the stomach and thrown into a man's vehicle after she and another girl were offered candy by a man on November 3, 1987. Roxanne had wandered off to pick flowers for her mother near their Garland, Texas apartment. The other girl with Roxanne, a neighbor, was older and seemed to be the stranger's target as he gave her chase as she ran screaming. But he was a predator, the worst kind, and any prey would do. Three-year-old Roxanne's body was found about ten miles away from where she'd been abducted in a vacant lot in Murphy, Texas, on May 19, 1988. After David Elliott Penton's conviction in 1991 for the murder of Nigel Ross in Ohio, he couldn't keep his mouth shut in prison about the other crimes he'd committed, which included the rapes and murders of Roxanne Reyes, Christy Proctor, and Christy Meeks. For years, investigators from multiple North Texas law enforcement agencies had been collecting evidence and witnesses linking Penton to these little girls' murders. Witness statements from those who could identify the man, this devil incarnate, from his failed attempts at abducting them when they were young children from various places in the Dallas area, were collected. As was largely the case at his Ohio indictment, Penton bragging about his crimes to cellmates and fellow prisoners was what hung him. He was extradited from Ohio to Texas to stand trial in Collin County, but to avoid the death penalty, Penton accepted a deal and pleaded guilty to the murders of Christy Proctor, Roxanne Reyes, and Christy Meeks before he ever stepped foot in the courtroom. But these were far from the cases of young girls that Texas authorities suspect David Elliott Penton for. Besides the December 1983 disappearance of Amber Nicole Crum in Dallas and the 1986 disappearance of Ara Denise Johnson in Big Sandy, investigators in Temple, Texas, wondered if Penton could be responsible for one of their cases from 1985. The disappearance of 11-year-old Angelica Maria Gandara Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Born in Bell County, Texas, to parents Humberto and Olivia, on February 5, 1974, Angelica Maria Gandara was last seen in the summer of 1985. The day before Angelica vanished, on Saturday, July 13th, a neighbor saw the 11-year-old 5th grader enjoying the summer day, pushing her baby niece in a stroller. Angelica's family lived only two blocks from her grandmother's house in Temple, Texas, and the girl was walking her niece back and forth between the two homes. The neighbor said that she observed a blue car pull up to Angelica, and it appeared that the driver was trying to coerce her in, but the girl just continued walking. The blue vehicle circled the block and slowed down again when it approached Angelica, and then drove off. Angelica did not mention this encounter to her parents. The next day, Sunday, July 14, 1985, Angelica's parents, Humberto and Olivia, were going to visit her aunt and uncle, but she didn't want to tag along. Instead, Angelica told them she wanted to walk to her grandmother's and spend the day there. Before arriving at her grandmother's house, Angelica visited with a friend. She arrived at her grandmother's not long after setting out and stayed there until 5 p.m. before saying goodbye and heading home. Angelica, however, never made it home. At some time between 5 and 5.30 p.m., a witness says they saw Angelica inside a Chevrolet pickup truck about two blocks from her grandmother's home. The truck was described as a 1977 model and was, quote, junky and in a general state of disrepair, at least physically. The pickup's hood and front fender were red and white, the truck's top white, and the doors blue and white. The witness said the vehicle was dented all over and dirty. A man and a woman, some reports say, were in the pickup with Angelica. When Angelica didn't come home, her parents and her 17-year-old sister simply thought she was at a friend's and had lost track of time. After searching for the 11-year-old for two hours, however, it became clear that something wasn't right. They phoned the temple police and reported Angelica missing. A team of four officers were assigned to search for the girl, while Angelica's parents, Humberto and Olivia, organized a search party of their own, consisting of family, friends, and neighbors. Angelica's sister and other family members began phoning local media outlets, television stations, and newspapers in hopes to get information about the disappearance out as quickly as possible. Before long, missing posters with Angelica's description hung in businesses all over the city of Temple. Angelica, a Hispanic female, stood 4 feet 10 inches tall and weighed 85 pounds. She had black hair and brown eyes and a mole on her nose. She was last seen wearing a black and white pullover short-sleeved shirt with sassoon printed across the front, black shorts, white bobby socks, and white sneakers. Concerned neighbors and Temple residents who were going out of town took missing flyers with them to distribute in other cities across the state, and by the following Friday, over 1,800 posters had been distributed. If Angelica had indeed been seen in a pickup truck with two people, her sister said, 
she would have had to have been forced in because she was not a kid who would willingly accept a ride. She kept to herself, her sister commented. That sighting, though, has been called confirmed in reports of the incident, and there was at least one more sighting to come. At a San Antonio Shamrock gas station and convenience store, a clerk said she saw Angelica Gandara on several occasions. San Antonio is about 150 miles southwest of Temple. Late the same month, she vanished. In July of 1985, the clerk of the store reported that a man in a car would drop off a girl who looked like Angelica there. The girl would go inside and make purchases while the driver watched and waited in his vehicle across the street. While making the purchases, the girl said little, acted nervous, and seemed to be in a hurry, the clerk reported. When she saw Angelica's missing poster, the clerk said she attempted to stall her the next time the girl was in while she called police, but said the man rushed in, grabbed the girl, and threatened her not to speak a word of it. The clerk could describe neither the car nor the man, making the story extremely doubtful, perhaps an attempt to insert herself in the case, for whatever reason it is folks do that. By the following month, Temple Police had classified Angelica's disappearance as a non-family abduction. On Wednesday, August 23, 1985, police set up a sting for South Americans in the area who had crossed the border illegally. They had a theory that Angelica Gandara had been kidnapped and shipped to Mexico to be forced into sex work. Someone in the undocumented community, police said they believed, knew something about her disappearance. However, authorities uncovered absolutely no information about Angelica in their roundup, which seemed to have no end in sight. By the following Friday, they had detained over 180 undocumented immigrants, making it look like Angelica's disappearance was only an excuse police needed to conduct such wide-scale raids. The theory, anyway, was far-fetched, and it seems law enforcement's true motive in the operation was not the missing girl. Angelica's disappearance went cold within months as leads and tips came to a halt. It was 2007 when Temple, Texas authorities announced that they considered David Elliott Penton a suspect in Angelica Gandara's disappearance. Cellmates of Penton reportedly claimed that he spoke of and implicated himself in her abduction, rape, and murder, and in the abductions, rape, and murders of Amber Crum and Ara Johnson. Penton denied ever mentioning the girls, but also said he wasn't guilty of the rapes and murders of the Texas girls he pleaded guilty to, and Nydra Johnson in Ohio. There was one other person Temple Police detectives considered a person of interest in Angelica's disappearance. On the morning of March 5, 1987, in Waco, Texas, Reserve Police Officer Troy Wells drove his wife to work. When they arrived and Mrs. Wells began to step out of the car, Troy saw a man walking their direction from a nearby home, and from the corner of his eye, Troy noticed a Camaro painted primer red parked close to his vehicle. Troy Wells wasn't on police duty, 
but his gut was telling him something was off with the man. He was acting anxious and suspicious. Troy told his wife to sit tight and wait for her co-worker to arrive to open up before he left her there. He wouldn't know until almost a month later, when Troy was shown a photo lineup, that the man he'd seen leaving this house was a child rapist and murderer. The man was Ramiro Ruby Ibarra, a Mexican citizen who was 36 years old at the time. On the evening of March 4, 1987, the night before Troy Wells witnessed the man, 16-year-old Maria de la Paz Suniga was babysitting her two nephews in the house. Ibarra was a Suniga family acquaintance, and at some point that evening, he broke into the home and attacked Maria, beating her severely before sexually assaulting and strangling her to death with a yellow electrical cord which remained around her neck when her body was found. Ibarra was arrested the day Maria Suniga's body was discovered. He had fresh scratch wounds on his face, neck, and chest. A search warrant was carried out on March 10th, in which detectives obtained hair and blood samples from the man. Ibarra was indicted on March 25th, 1987. Witnesses, including reserve policeman Troy Wells, identified Ramiro Ruby Ibarra as leaving the scene the morning after the rape and slang. Yellow wire was found in Ibarra's vehicle, though it was not the same gauge as the wire used to strangle Maria. Though the blood scraped from under Maria's fingernails and the semen recovered from her body matched Ibarra's DNA, The search warrant had been procured improperly, and all the evidence against Ibarra was suppressed. For reasons I do not fully understand after reading the Texas Code of Criminal Procedure on search warrants, as Article 1801D was cited as the reason, investigators were unable to secure another search warrant against Ibarra. The state was forced to dismiss the indictment against him. It's difficult to hold back the emotional response that naturally bubbles to the surface when learning of such an egregious mistake on the part of police in this case. Those feelings become even trickier to suppress when learning of the twisted crimes Ibarra subsequently committed after the indictment fell through. A couple years after he brutally raped and murdered 16-year-old Maria Suniga, Ramiro Ruby Ibarra began anally raping his seven-year-old nephew upon the threat of death if he did not comply. I won't go any further into that. Luckily, on October 10, 1996, Ibarra was finally arrested in Bell County for Maria de la Paz Suniga's murder. He was indicted, this time successfully, tried in McLennan County, and found guilty. Ibarra was sentenced to die by lethal injection, and though an appeal was accepted by the Texas Court of Appeals in 1991, they ultimately upheld the guilty verdict and the death sentence. His lawyers tried taking it to the Supreme Court, but they denied his appeal without comment. Ibarra was also tried in a Bell County court after the murder trial for the rape of his seven-year-old nephew, for which he received a life sentence. Ramiro Ruby Ibarra is scheduled to be executed on March 4, 
2021. Temple detectives were never able to connect him to Angelica Gandara's disappearance, but his photograph and information remain in the case file. If you have any information about the disappearance of Angelica Maria Gandara in Temple, Texas, please contact Bell County Crime Stoppers at 254-526-8477. If you have any information about the disappearance of Ara Denise Johnson in Big Sandy, Texas, please contact the Upshur County Sheriff's Office at 903-843-2541. If you have any information about the disappearance of Amber Nicole Crum, please contact the Dallas Police at 214-670-4426. If you'd like to help find answers for the families of unsolved crime victims, please visit dnasolves.com where you can submit your DNA data from a consumer testing company like Ancestry or 23andMe to their database. Your DNA profile will only be used for law enforcement investigations. DNAsolves.com is run by Othram, who recently helped Fort Worth police detectives identify Carla Walker's killer. That's among a lot of other good work Othram has done. You can pre-register to receive a DNA kit from them if you haven't already had it done, and those kits will be available in the near future and the cost to you will be only around 10 bucks to offset shipping charges. We'll provide a link in the show notes. You can support Gone Cold at patreon.com forward slash Gone Cold Podcast. Donors at all levels there get the show ad-free, and for just two and a half bucks, you'll have access to episodes featuring stories of mostly solved Texas crimes and the bad actors who perpetrated them such as Dr. Dreadful and our latest there, The Devil of West Texas, among others. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon. We appreciate it beyond words. The Tyler Morning Telegraph, The Austin American Statesman, The Fort Worth Star-Telegram, The Longview News Journal, The Cameron Herald, Del Rio News Herald, EastTexasMatters.com, and Court Documents, were used as sources for this episode. Thanks for listening, y'all.